0: Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1181 called Science and Zero-G. Our podcast title today is Isle of Pods. I am Rob Jan.
1: And Megan McHugh.
0: And today we will be talking to somebody who's going to tell us about the science in science fiction, we'll get to that in due course. Avengers, Infinity Wars, a bit of a stir about opening on Anzac Day.
1: Oh, of course,
0: oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, movie theatres are allowed to open at 10am. What's that been?
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah. I love this because I wouldn't, it, wouldn't be, it would be un Australian not to take the piss. It's like <laughs> political correctness gone mad. If Anzac Day is not the day to play a war movie, When is? Yeah. That's what I say. (laughs) So we're all excited and all set for that. And there's more cinema in a genre vein coming out at the Cinema Nova in Carlton. They're playing free science fiction films to explore big screen science. And, well, filmmakers can go to considerable lengths to get the science right, or at least right enough to sound convincing to the audience. (laughs) And it's um, important for a science fiction film is it's basic procedural plus... Science fiction fans are very picky. <laughs> Who'd have thunk?
1: Science fiction fans slash Rob. <laughs>
0: yeah. Even more so in the age of the internet because our Google Foo is mighty. So, the films they've chosen to play are Galaxy Quest and also Apollo 13 and Roth of Khan, the second Star Trek motion picture. And to talk about the science in science fiction today we've got Dr Rachel Livermore from the University of Melbourne she is an astrophysicist and astronomer and uh, who uses entire galaxies as lenses to study the cosmos welcome aboard Rachel oh
2: thank you for having me
0: so you are a science fiction fan as well of course uh, and quite, In fact, quite a science fiction fan I've seen from the research I've done. Um, you've, <laughs> you've got your own Star Trek dress, of course. Of course. Uh, she's wearing a very spacey number, which I believe you probably made yourself. Um,
2: I did. It actually features images that I work on as part of my day job. Oh, <sighs> wow.
0: That is... I
1: know. Yeah. She's got one up on you.
0: <laughs> she's out us. this. Uh, okay, now... Um, you have a grant for studying galaxies in the epoch i love that word mm-hmm. epoch of reionization and i believe that, well, actually i should say i have looked up and found mm-hmm. out that that's to do with the re-ion, reionization that caused the matter in the universe well come back after the uh, what they call the Dark Ages. And this is all Big Bang theory sort of stuff. He just babbles away at that. Um, you feel free to jump in and explain it to me. Yeah,
2: so it's about the first billion years of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so immediately after the Big Bang, the universe was basically just protons and electrons swimming around in this big, dense soup. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they combine to form hydrogen atoms and then those things combine and they form stars and they form galaxies And at some point, all the leftover hydrogen atoms in the universe became ionized. So the electrons were stripped off the protons. And we don't entirely know why. We know it happened pretty quickly. Um, At some point in the first billion years of the universe, and it's sustained to this day. And the prevailing theory is that it's the first stars and galaxies pumping energy out into the universe is ionizing all the hydrogen. But we've never seen enough galaxies to actually be sure that there are enough of them to do that. And so, what I work on is finding these very, very distant, very early galaxies, especially the faint ones, um, to see if there are enough of them to have powered reionization.
0: So, you can use the uh, the total gravitational effect of a galaxy as a lens?
2: Yeah. It's a really cool side effect of general relativity. General relativity is just theory of gravity that says that um, space is curved in the presence of mass. So if you take the most massive things in the universe, which are clusters of galaxies, they bend space so much that space itself can act as a lens. Mm. And and this means if we look at galaxies that happen to lie behind the clusters, the light is passing through this curved space, being lensed, and the distant galaxies can be magnified.
0: It just boggles the mind. It
2: is (laughs) mind-boggling.
0: I mean, I'm actually literally thinking of a... of a... not a spectacle lens, but a telescope lens know with the two surfaces and thinking of an entire galaxy doing that
2: yeah it's amazing Ah. i like to describe it as you know most people have their their eight inch telescopes at home or we use 10 meter telescopes in hawaii um and i use 10 to the 21 meter telescopes out in space and then i just use the (laughs) hubble space telescope as like a secondary mirror to collect the light
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) Ah, I'm a bit go- gobstep over the whole concept
2: what a great day job. Yeah. <laughs> it is a fantastic day job and it means I get to talk about Star Trek as part of my job.
0: Mm. So you get to write that off on your text, <laughs> which would be very important to you because you were originally an accountant. Um, oh, yeah,
2: that's my dark secret past. <laughs> well, we're
0: into dark matters here. And and, and then you uh, you were the treasurer of the Tolkien Society in the United Kingdom. Oh, someone's Googled me. No, yeah, we worked on this um, sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, so I was really good at maths, as you might expect. And I had one of those terrible career advisors who said, oh, you're good at maths, you're going to be an accountant. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite as simple as that. I was also poor. I couldn't afford to go to university. So I became an accountant. And then while I was treasurer of the Tolkien Society, we ran a convention for the 50th anniversary of Lord of the Rings, and we had an astrophysicist come to speak about astronomy in Tolkien, which exists, and it's really cool.
0: And oh, uh, it just blew
2: my mind that... Um, Tolkien's
0: lunar myth creation.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. the one. Okay. Um, it, was, it just blew my mind that there was someone for whom this was their day job, and I thought, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> oh God, um, you
0: love Terry Pratchett. I do love Terry with Pratchett. His yeah. astrolog- <laughs> astronomy, astronomical theories. <laughs> um, we actually have something in common here. My mum used to uh, bring me home um, books from the second-hand shop that she worked in. So I hear that your mother did one too.
2: Yeah, um, she couldn't keep up with me. I read too much, so she would just go to the charity shop and pick up whatever they had for twenty p. And one day it happened to be a book of Isaac Asimov short stories. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it. I was hooked on space. <laughs> and it's very
0: specific too. It's nightfall, nightfall which which yeah. of course involves
2: Um the idea is um it's a planet with multiple stars and so it's never nighttime or it's a nighttime once every like several thousand years or something. And so an individual person ne- is probably never going to see night and it exists only in legend. Hmm. And because people go mad, they're not used to being in the dark, um, the civilization kind of collapses. I know this is my memory from many, many years no, ago. No, you're doing well. Um, and there's this legend of when it gets dark, you start to see lights in the sky, which of course are stars, and people think this is a sign they're going mad. It was just so interesting to me to take something um, physical like a multi-star system with planets around it and say, okay, how would this actually impact civilization and the way people live? I, it was amazing, and that's still my favourite thing that science fiction does.
0: He pushed it even further too because it was at the galactic core. So the sky nights, it was just like so bright everywhere all Rain. the time. And I think um, they tried experimentation to try and simulate it. The psychologists, they'd have a, a dark room and then they'd punch holes <laughs> <laughs> in the. And, and of course, you know, when. Um, if to, to, to fight the night, fire comes to mind so the the civilizations would burn to the ground as everyone tried to create light for themselves oh it's a great story and there's um i think i can remember it in the Panther science fiction um editions usually with plasticine pictures on the covers and stuff <laughs> anyway uh all right now um You've got a blog critiquing the science of Star Trek, which is at, uh, well, if you Google snarky astronomer, (laughs) (laughs) you will find that um, pretty easily. And um, I've noticed you've done lectures before about, or talks before about uh, Galaxy Quest, um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Apollo 13 which are free science fiction films. And I put Apollo 13 as a science fiction film because it is based on a true story, but nevertheless, it does take dramatic licence. So. Yeah, it
2: has fictionalised
0: elements mm. to it. Yeah, we, we include science <laughs> films as science fiction. Uh, okay, so um, this is all going to be at the Nova and I'd like to talk about um, uh, Galaxy Quest first. Now, this is a this is a a comedic film, it's a parody of Star Trek, don't they get a pass for that, science-wise?
2: Well, okay, so first of all, I have to say that when I'm critiquing the science of a film, I am not one of those spoil sports who gets up and says, well, this is rubbish and that's terrible. Good. Um, because what's the fun in that? I do that sometimes. Um, <laughs> we all do that sometimes. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's no fun if you're just standing there saying, well, this film is terrible because they got the coordinates of Vega wrong. Yeah. Um, although I do- they, and they're
0: trying too.
2: Right. You know. Sometimes.
0: Sometimes. Um,
2: although actually <laughs> the film Contact does get the coordinates of Vega wrong. Ah. Minor detail. Mm. <laughs> um, so what the thing that I think is more fun is to take the little offhand comments and like little things you see on screen that are never remarked upon uh-huh. and say, hey, this actually relates to some really cool science. Okay. Um, so in Galaxy Quest, there's a black hole with an accretion disc. Yes. And... Um, So there's all these little things that you wouldn't necessarily notice because you're watching a comedy film. And also some things about the way that it parodies Star Trek. There's a moment where they land on a planet and people just cavalierly open the doors of the shuttle (laughs) and um, Sam Rockwell's character says, what are you doing? Is there air? You don't know. (laughs) Um, It's a thing they did on Star Trek all the time and this is a way of pointing out that, yes, scientifically that's kind of ludicrous.
0: Uh, And the the explanation is that um, they... Couldn't either, could afford spacesuits or uh, really didn't want to use them anyway because it would obscure the faces of the yeah, actors. Yeah.
1: So. Shatner wanted to be seen. Yeah,
0: that <laughs> hair. You know. And it's harder to rip a spacesuit. Helmet hair, hair is
1: terrible. Oh,
0: speaking <laughs> of ripped spacesuits, i watching the Netflix Lost in Space, and the first thing they did when they they um, got on the surface of the planet was crack their suits open. Well, they, actually, the 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 mother of Maureen Robinson, um, she just. Mm-hmm off the helmet but mm. but her husband john had already ripped his suit so she figured that you know never mind the pathogens <laughs> floating around but
1: well they do that in coven they do that in all the alien movies where they just yeah. stroll out and then you know stick their face into a like gray wiggly alien and but, but the d- sad zero dis- like no regard for
0: <laughs> the sad thing let's not talk about ridley scott's <laughs> the sad thing is that um in the original Lost in Space, or at least in the television series, not the comic book, uh, they had the robot that actually went out the first time they landed on a planet, went out, did a little soil sample, checked the atmosphere and all that. And now here we are in 2018 and they don't do any of that. So
2: I always assume that that happens off camera. Mm. They yeah. must have done some kind of survey and they've established that this planet is safe and has normal atmospheric pressure and composition yeah. and... Because
1: I guess in a film narrative you're not going to be like, okay, now this scene is about the taking of biological matter, right? just <laughs> making sure everything's on, you know, on par and then, yeah, so I suppose narrative-wise it's not
0: as exciting. In real life the first, you know, you'd have 24 episodes devoted to just the, the procedural of finding out if it's actually safe to go outside.
1: Well, there's someone sitting at the computer waiting for the coordinates to be correctly calculated in there.
0: Or, or not even getting there. I did like this one, the idea that they were lost in space because they'd mistaken the metric system for the imperial system in their course corrections.
2: So that's actually one thing I complain about a lot in Star Trek is the way they mix up units.
0: Looking, looking at you, British rocket scientists. <laughs> Do you remember that?
2: But yes, yeah, yeah, sadly, didn't work on it.
0: <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> Talking about the, uh, was it the Space Beagle Mars probe that um, they, they 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 did the measurements wrong in the in the orbital calculations and just missed that it by. Very sad. Oh, oh, sad. oh, okay. So more more on Galaxy Quest. Tell us what else is. Um, what do they get right on Galaxy Quest apart from the Beryllium Sphere? <laughs> the
2: Beryllium Sphere <laughs> is completely scientifically accurate, as is the Omega Thirteen. Yes. Um, if you don't know what that is, you need to come and see the movie. Yeah, that's
0: right. There you go. Showing
2: oh, it the Nova. Oh, my God.
0: Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, it's been since 19, what was it, 1999. Yeah, get over it. <laughs> apollo 13 and that's one of the movies that's going to be playing at the nova as part of their big uh, science on the big screen series along with roth of khan and galaxy quest and dr rachel livermore is here and we're talking about the science in these movies apollo 13 you would think like 2001 a space odyssey that it was one where the director has really tried really hard um, you know, to get the the science and the technology right. Um, I mean, I can I mean, even to the extent of filming sections in the in the capsule in a zero g simulator up in you know in the uh, the free fall arc with the planes. To, um, but even there, they still get it wrong. I mean, this is like they but they can't help but get it wrong. Breathing out uh, in the cold capsule after things have gone wrong on Apollo thirteen, their breath floats a bit upwards you know it's like supposed to be zero gravity wouldn't go in any one direction but how can you you know
2: i mean mean you would think this would be a film that would get things right it does have the benefit of actually being based on a true story Mm. so they don't have to invent warp drive and dodgy aliens (laughs) and things um and yet somehow um, there are a few things that are wrong. Now, if you come to my screening of Apollo 13, I will have an extensive, very, very nerdy rant about Tom Hanks' maths. <laughs> <laughs> um, his maths skills are appalling. I'm afraid he would have died if he was an astronaut. Um, and also, weirdly, given that it's a movie about a mission to the moon, they get the moon wrong. Oh, yeah. This is one of these things that as soon as you start paying attention, it's astonishing how many movies get the moon wrong like simple phases of the moon, this is primary school physics, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, even these movies like Apollo 13, The Dish is the same, movies where the moon is central to the plot, they Mm -hmm. still manage to get it wrong.
0: Um, Yeah, some of that, I mean, obviously, sometimes it's just continuity errors. Uh, Other times, it is just plain wrong, they just did the wrong thing.
2: Yeah, well, I think with all of these, the the moon is added in. Mm. So, there's really no excuse for getting it wrong. I remember um, the,
0: the lovely shot of the, of the ship heading towards the moon, directly towards the moon, like there's no such – and, you know, it's not, not exactly windage but the things – the moon's moving along and you don't actually aim at the moon where it is now in the picture you're like sort of off to the left or the right of whichever
2: yeah you aim to way. where the moon's going to be by the time you get there
0: yeah you've got to lead it. it doesn't work otherwise
2: yeah 2001 a space odyssey as well there's this um, long long sequence of like, i think it's the shuttle craft or something landing on the moon mm-hmm. and it's a really long sequence it's even longer if you consider that the moon is going through full cycles in that time so it actually seems to take
0: a month <laughs> <laughs> well maybe it does that's why that's why um, he does Floyd, like
1: to <laughs> create dramatic tension
0: yeah, over time. That's why Haywood Floyd has to go to the toilet at least once, which is a first in a, in a science fiction movie. Really, nobody ever even bothers about that. Um, but you know, I mean, I was, I was trying to think. There's stuff in it that they tried re- so hard. I've been reading a lot of books about 2001 because of the 50th anniversary. Um, they, they, they worked with NASA. They worked with NASA engineers. They Maybe they should have worked with more Soviet engineers, but um, you know they had so much input from all of that. It doesn't actually show. It doesn't actually show in the script a lot of the times, but it shows on screen where you'll see all of this development work that feels like it's got a back trail. But then you know there's stuff like um, okay, we've got this wonderful discovery spaceship. It's this this long. It's got nuclear engines, but it doesn't have any heat radiators. They were drawn, but it looked too much like a dragonfly, so they went off with the radiators. Where's our waste heat going? But, you know. but, but tell me more about 2001. That's, that's one I, would have, I hold up as one of the icons.
2: Oh, really? Well, I love the book, but as a scientist, I, I tend to like my stories quite literal. Uh-huh. Um, I like them to have characters and I like them to have plot. Yes. So 2001 is not my favourite movie, I have to admit. Uh-huh. Um, I have done a screening of it back when I lived in the US. I, I sat through it. Three times in the space of a week. Oh that was wow. fun. Um, it is actually very good scientifically, and you have to bear in mind that this was made before we were accustomed to seeing people in zero gravity. Mm. Yeah, and so they make attempts, so the Velcro shoe thing, um, to like show how people might walk normally mm. uh, on a spacecraft in zero gravity.
0: And so, the carousel in the ship.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's pretty amazing. Um, so there's lots of things that are really good about it. I just as well as having decent science, I like to enjoy
1: the experience of watching the film and that was not an experience <laughs> I had with that one. I guess this is a question that um, I was going to bring up a bit later, but I'm interested, is there any films or even just little things you've seen in films where you've been surprised by how accurate it was or that it was a detail mm. you didn't you thought would be easily overlooked but they've obviously put time to...?
2: Well, I don't know about surprised, but The Martian is yeah. amazing. Um
1: I say I'm not surprised because there was obviously a lot of effort went into it, and and the novel. You've read the novel, yeah. And obviously, I think Andy Weir goes to pains in the novel to try to get things particularly right. And there is one very, very glaring scientific error in The Martian, but I mean,
2: Andy Weir acknowledges um, (laughs) not the gravity problem. Um, well, okay, there's the gravity <laughs> on Mars, yes, yes. That's a problem in the film. Apart from which that. <laughs> I think I read they, like, discussed ways of showing the low gravity and then mm. just kind of went, eh, let's not bother. We need to try to make this a film as yeah. well. As oh, there. and
0: the storms, the... Uh, yeah, so I yeah. do that? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah the, there isn't enough atmospheric pressure on Mars to <laughs> cause a storm that would actually cause things to fall over. Or well, yeah.
0: spear you with... <laughs>
2: right, Yeah. <laughs> Um, But I actually find that kind of reassuring because what it means is there was no scientifically plausible way he could think up that would cause someone to be abandoned on Mars. Mm. Mm. So that's kind of nice, really.
0: Budget cuts. (laughs) Right.
2: Mm. I mean, I think that's the biggest scientific inaccuracy in the film. Actually, is how much um, time, energy, and money was spent rescuing one person. Mm.
0: You got to say when it's Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you it,
2: got
0: it. You know, it's actually what was, what's the meme? here? They've spent a huge amount of money saving Matt Damon in exactly. different films. <laughs>
1: yeah, over the many years. Um, yeah, okay. Is there any other films that you think well, you were surprised um, at how how well they had done with some of the science?
2: Yeah, I tend to be more surprised by the silly films where you don't expect the science to be right. So Mm -hmm. I I was complaining about phases of the moon in a lot of these really serious films. The one movie I've seen where they actually get the phase of the moon for the time of day and the position absolutely right is Star Trek First Contact. Okay. Um, Now, the downside is they specify the date and that's not the correct phase of the moon for that date. (laughs) But it is in the right position in the sky for the time of day. So So, so for the most part,
1: it's pretty good.
0: I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero-G on 3RRR is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the black stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, with three exclamation marks. And on Zero-G we are talking to Dr Rachel Livermore, an astrophysicist from the University of Melbourne. And she is presenting these films. Are there talks after the films or before?
2: Um, They're they're after, Mm -hmm. so you don't have to have seen the film before. You can come, just watch the film, and then I'll talk about it for 15, 20 minutes
0: afterwards. Star Trek, the wrath of (laughs) God. Widely touted as one of the best Star Trek movies. Um, The best. Widely touted (laughs) as that. I mean,
2: I actually disagree with that, to be honest. Um, Number three is my favourite, but... No one agrees with me. Really? So as much as I would love to do a screening of that one, I wasn't convinced anyone would buy a Is ticket. Is that the whale one? No,
0: that's no. Search for Spock. Oh.
1: So <laughs> instantly yeah. we just go, no. <laughs> no. how dare you.
0: <laughs> well, the stuff in the Search for Spock. I mean, I'm a big Klingon fan, so for me that was, mm-hmm. that was the big thing for that. Um, but I thought the production levels on that were, were cheaper. It's beautiful.
2: Um, I think the thing for me is Star Trek was always about the characters and the crew. And that's the movie where you see the crew come together and you see that Mm. their family, who have been together for a really long time, Mm. they're all willing to um, risk their careers, their lives, to go and rescue Spock. And it's pretty amazing.
0: Well, this is part of a... um uh, an actual trilogy in the Star Trek movies you've got Search for Spock uh, sorry uh, of Khan Search for Spock and The Voyage Home so those three actually tie together as, an, as a, a small sort of trilogy um and when I first saw, because I saw Roth of Khan 15 times in the cinema, I went wow, that's I, w- I went out and bought a, a copy of A Tale of Two Cities just to read and, and Moby Dick and all the other books on Khan's bookshelf. I just <laughs> went crazy on all that. And um, But one of the things that bugged me straight up in Roth of Khan was they call the, the planet CT Alpha 5. Now, you know, I was an astronomy nerd when I was a kid, ast- astronautics and astronomy, and I, you know, it's, to me it sounded wrong it should be Alpha Seti 6 because they've got it wrong
2: yeah that's one of the things that I complain about in that movie
0: mm-hmm. um, one of them.
2: Alpha Seti is a real star yes um, but yeah Seti Alpha is not
0: 249 light years out which is fair enough that sounds very Star Trek sort of distance um, yeah, I
2: mean, if you go to my blog, I sometimes calculate the amount of time it would actually take to get to these places, and it's never <laughs> what is represented no. on screen.
0: Especially not in a J.J. Abrams oh, well, Star Trek. Oh, no, that's Trek. just ludicrous. It's <laughs> like, we'll get there tomorrow. <laughs> I
2: mean, when they invented the portable transporter uh, that enables you to go to a whole other planet, you're like, why do you even have starships anymore? Yes, yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> we, we've been all over this. <laughs> but... But then I realize that it's a constellation of Cetus, which is a sea monster in Greek mythology, and we often call it the whale today. So Moby Dick. Cetus. Wow. So I that thought deep. that actually yeah, I thought actually that works quite well. So what do you think about all that? The the, the uh, in Roth of Khan they um, they approach this planet, which everyone in Starfleets conveniently forgot they marooned a massive war criminal on. Um, <laughs> but the, they 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 excuse that by saying that uh, they've mistaken that planet for the other one because the uh, the other planet blew up, causing an orbital shift. Yeah. What do you think of that? So
2: this is a common thing in Star Trek. They seem to think that planets go through evolutionary cycles like stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's an original series episode, "The Naked Time," where the original setup is they've gone to this planet to observe its death throes and they're watching this planet break up. Hmm. If this is a real thing, that is a huge scientific discovery because planets don't do that. Mm. Um, You can smash planets into each other and they'll break up. Oh, smash a big enough asteroid, it'll break up. But they don't do it on their own. And the idea that this happened in this star system and there's no remnant of the original... um, Also, the numbers are wrong, aren't they? Mm. Because they think they're going to SETI Alpha 6... And they end up on Seti Alpha Five. Mm-hmm. You think they
0: they yeah. count? <laughs> um, and, yeah. And, and who is the first? Who is the um, the science officer on this ship? Chekhov, who's a navigator. He is the navigator.
2: So my headcanon for this (laughs) is when they arrive at a star system, they're not counting planets. They don't go Mercury, Venus, okay, that one's Earth. Mm. Um, They're going to the position where they expect the planet to be, and I guess the planet's in the wrong position because there was some kind of big cataclysmic thing that threw off all the orbits. Yeah, I have no explanation
0: for that. I have actually. <laughs> I did a fan story once, um, which explained a number of neat little things. And that, and the the planet exploded because a Klingon starship crashed into it, and uh, its antimatter drive cooked off. And the survivors of the Klingon ship ended up on Khan's planet, which is why they got that Klingon proverb, which is actually Sicilian, Uh, about revenge being a dish best served cold. There you go. That's the explanation for it. That works. A pretty Um, big antimatter drive.
2: They continue this weird idea about planet evolution in The Search for Spock as well,
0: where um,
2: the idea is they've um, terraformed this planet Mm -hmm. and then it evolves faster than normal which means that by the time of the movie The Search for Spock, it's breaking up and destroying itself. Mm -hmm. I have no idea why.
0: (laughs) I don't have an explanation for that. (laughs) It makes
2: for some cool visuals.
0: As as I I actually spoke that, I got an email from Ostrek, the Star Trek fan club, of Victoria. (laughs) Um, Just an email advertising Star Trek. I thought, what are the... That's that's creepy. Uh, Okay, now... Google's
1: always listening. (laughs) Yeah, it
0: is. Oh, yeah, it could be. It could be... um, Jarvis or Friday or Siri or whatever they're calling it. They now. just hold
1: all your emails, and then when you talk about anything, they just send
0: it. Send it. them out. Yeah. So okay, Star Trek of Khan. um There's, there's, there's still. A, it's still a very watchable movie, and down to little things like um, Nicholas Meyer was the director of that. Things like uh, the bridge slightly moving as the ship tilted from side to side for whatever nautical reason he was going into. Uh, but you say it, it was one of your favourites, if not, if not the favourite
2: um well search for spock is my favorite mm. um i oh, think yes, yeah wrath of khan is generally wins all the fan votes mm. as being the best but i i tend to see that trilogy of wrath of khan search for spock and voyage home as one unit yeah yeah. and it is yeah, it's a fantastic uh, trilogy of movies
0: mm. okay so uh that's the three films galaxy quest apollo 13 and wrath of khan um mm. <laughs> we could we could spend the entire show talking about this sort of stuff. <laughs> we could, we could um, open a can of WAPAS on Interstellar. Um,
2: I hate that film
0: Beginning passion. <laughs> beginning with launching a rocket next to their meeting room. You just open the door and there's the rocket Wait. silo. Although well, they get away with it in um, – uh, you could do that in uh, – a nuclear submarine because they're ejecting the uh, the missiles first with um, gas or steam or mm. compressed air or something like that. So there's no actual like exhaust coming stuff. into the submarine. Yeah, yeah. Although I bet that wouldn't stop them if they needed somebody to be under the rocket, tied to it or something mm. like that in hazard. Um, gravity, which I actually like, apart from the orbital plane sort of jiggery-pokery Yeah, that I've do. done talks
2: about gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really like it. I think it's a, a brilliant film. It does have a few scientific issues, <laughs> um, basic laws of motion yeah. sort of go out of the window. And, yeah, the fact that all of these objects are in the same orbit, very, very close together in a little space neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. But I actually have headcanon that corrects this. Uh, one of the reasons... Oh, say that again. Mm-hmm. Say that word. Head cannon. head
0: cannon. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very geeky thing there. Go on.
2: <laughs> so one of the reasons that the shuttle program was retired is one of the safety problems is that there's no escape if something like the situation in gravity happens. Mm. So in this alternate universe in which the shuttle program has continued, it makes sense that you might mm. move all of these things um, into the same orbit so that in this situation you can use the ISS or the Chinese station um, as
0: an escape pod. Oh, that is good. I it, like that. It is an yeah. alternate
2: universe, so yeah. you can do what you want.
0: Where the shuttle program is still running. <laughs> no.
2: This is the better universe. <laughs>
0: better universe yeah. But I, I just loved um, the, the the performances in that too. This is what uh, speaking to what you were saying before about being an enjoyable movie to watch, and it's great in 3D. Yeah, oh I saw it God. in IMAX it's 3D, so good. Yeah. and
1: I will say that was a very, very, very good experience. Mm. And Queasy, but in a good way that I think it really... I don't know, it was the closest... You know when you go to films like that in a situation like that, you're like, oh, this is what cinema can do. It's one of those films, I think. Did
0: George Clooney have to die? No.
1: (laughs)
2: So
1: this is like the Yeah, that was the, like, laws of motion thing.
2: But narratively, yes. Narratively, I mean, he was an enormous misogynist, so I was not crying over him at all.
0: But he's an astronaut. Male astronauts are often lying.
1: And it was Sandra's journey. It It was all about... (laughs) Our girl
0: Sandra. Sorry. Yeah. Actually, I shouldn't say that at all. Should
1: oh, I? it's been long enough. It's fine.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I think it's okay. I think it's all right.
0: Yeah. You think they know that he dies? <laughs> well, they do now. They do now. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Um, okay. So, so how did? Why, how how would he have not died?
2: Well, the problem is that he's. This is when they're trying to get towards the ISS, yes. right? And they. Um, they have to grab onto it because if you go past, obviously you keep going forever. Mm. Mm. And they're grabbing onto it's like the strings of the parachute or something. Mm-hmm. And so he starts swinging off. Um, Sandra Bullock is holding the other end of this string mm-hmm. and he stops. And at that point, there is no force acting on him mm. relative to the ISS. So all Sandra Bullock would have had to do, slightest tug,
0: and tiniest he would have amount
2: of motion in her direction, and he would have moved in the right direction and mm. been saved. Mm. Um, when she lets go of the string it makes no sense that he floats off in the opposite direction he should have just stayed stationary like forever staring at the ISS until his oxygen runs
0: out see a 2001 astronaut whose helmets have a a convenient um, O2 hose going up to their helmet Mm. as you know hell 9000 cuts that in the film now a really right stuff astronaut would have clamped it off of his hand and then point it, pulled it down a bit to get to the centre of gravity mm. of, his, of his, his little system and then fired it off and used the jet mm. from that to get back to the ship. Well,
2: Sandra Bullock kind of does that with
0: a fire extinguisher, not she? She does, doesn't she, doesn't she? yeah.
2: Um, a scene that's... Was that copied from Wally or was it the other way
0: around? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, Wally does that, doesn't yeah. he? Oh, my God, yeah. I'd forgotten that.
2: The Wally one is more accurate.
0: So this so is why we need fire extinguishers around. in space. Even though it might not actually be the best tool for the job a fire extinguisher in space? What's well, re- a movement? Yeah, there's a movement there Pu- going on there. Wouldn't it be like a movement jet? <laughs> oh, god, I've seen this and read about this in some um, science fiction books. They use a sort of like a grenade, a fire extinguisher mm-hmm. grenade. That yeah. You, pitch into the middle of the blaze, which and is I weird anyway, because it, it's a circular glob globe of, of flame and smoke mm. inside of that, and it's really strange. Yeah,
2: and that's one of the things that gravity does really well,
0: mm, and yes.
2: the way that fire in zero G behaves has done brilliantly.
0: Mm. Well, thank you for putting the fire into zero G today. You've done <laughs> brilliantly, Rachel, and this is Dr. Rachel Livermore talking to us about the nova cinemas festival of science on the big screen which starts off with on the 29th i think am i right there with the galaxy quest yes this sunday and uh then onwards over the course of a couple of months isn't it really a month at least with apollo 13 and um also uh star trek 2 the wrath of khan so thank you for coming in today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Hey, this is Craig Charles, Dave Lister from Red Dwarf. You're listening to the London Jet Zero G Football Show. And what? Zero G? Science fiction show? Oh, smeg. Yeah. That, that explains um, planets blowing up and stuff. Yeah, uh, what a fun
1: chat. I oh. like. I mean, I know you like to uh, discuss the science of the oh, science yeah. fiction, but I'm always, I'm one of those people who's very much like, if you can sell it as part of the plot, I'm okay.
0: That's exactly what I think. If you can sell it, if you can give us a line of dialogue that at least throws us a, throw a freaking bone, Mr. See, Kubrick. <laughs> I'm, I'm
1: still more I'm more forgiving. Like I don't think you need to – some stuff, yes. Yeah. Other, like if you're wandering out with no helmet on outside of a non-airlock, then, yeah, that's shoddy. Hmm. But generally I can – artistic licence, I'm yeah. all right with it. To a, p- to, a point, to
0: a point. Everybody brings different baggage to these things from a different <laughs> area in space. Uh, okay, so um, not an area in space but Isle of Dogs. Well,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mm, we, we started talking about that last week and we ran out of time. Where's Anderson's default quirky style there? Um, a very uh, – I felt I felt it carried – the film carried a lot of political weight, mm-hmm. especially in current times. Looking at you, pot-ass Trump.
1: Because it is set in a future dystopian Japan.
0: Yes, um, And I thought that they did a really good job of uh, air quotes, dog whistling, Mm -hmm. about the demonisation of an entire species for political and financial gain.
1: Indeed. And the manipulation of the people.
0: Yes. There isn't actually an Academy Award for that that category. Oh, cat. Cats. Cats are libelled in this film. Yes. How did you
1: feel about this? (laughs) I,
0: I, as a person who's um, got a foot in both scamps, cats Mm -hmm. and dogs, um, I thought, oh, look at the cats as being the evil ones.
1: But it was only because they—I don't think they were evil. They were just associated with the evil camp.
0: But to finish that that thought, this is true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, cats are evil. evil.
0: Uh, okay, and another main grace note, of course, are the, the canines as characters, mm. uh, all manifest in the voices, at least by Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum, mm. Francis McDormand, Harvey Keitel, Bob Belladan and Scarlett Johansson, and Tilda Swinton, and F. Murray Abrams. I all mean,
1: some of those voice creds—they're dialing in a line or two of dialogue. But yes. but I think there are some core voices in there that just perfect, sold it so well.
0: And Dr Livermore before was talking about uh, Wall-E and and the Trash Island setting Mm. for Isle of Dogs. That deserves to be a character in itself. Yeah. That that is so authentically grubby. (laughs) I just loved all of that. It's just yuck. It's so disgusting. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, This is Wes Anderson's film, story by Roman Coppola, Jason Schwartzman and Kenichi Nomura. Yes. Um, who uh, the last one of those? Well, the other ones have all worked with Wes Anderson before. Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, Old hats. You know, they've all they've all done that before. Um, although I, I noticed that Schwartzman uh, did the script for um, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Hmm. Worked on that. Uh, but uh, Nomura he's a Japanese actor, a writer, a DJ, of course, and a radio personality,
1: and a cool dude,
0: <laughs> and a cool dude. Basically, um, he's actually been in um, films too. Yes. So he's one of those guys who can do everything, and um, we're we're making an assumption uh, that his um, working on the script has added in more of a Japanese element to yeah. it than than not.
1: So there's a Japanese person on the core creative team. Yeah, and I think from my from what I take from the film is that there's a very strong Japanese presence in the film. In that there was obviously the involvement of shock horror actual Japanese people when both visualising, scripting and sort of the execution of the film.
0: And it's really strangely done too because uh, there's no subtitles. Yeah. Um, It's the Japanese language is translated. In film. In film by a translator. Yeah. Uh, And... It's strangely done too. It's unreliable
1: But I love sometimes. that too because there's bits that we don't get to understand. Sure. And the bits that we do get are through like, die- I don't know if you can use diegetic in this case, but in film translation or different means to get it to us in English. And mm. I think that's kind of his way of showing that he's trying to Make a respectful cultural experience. Not mm. to be too. Let's dig into that side of it. Yeah, but I did like that there were no subtitles per se.
0: Yes, um, we have um, commentary from authentic Japanese people who have said basically that it's very funny mm. some of the ways that these come through in the audience. If they're in a Western audience, nobody laughs. Just whoosh, totally
1: yeah, over their totally head. Totally over their head. Yeah,
0: uh, like I have no idea about any of the kanji script on on anything. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that are very um, sort of Japanese branding on different crates and things like that or Japanese graffiti and all kinds of little nods that are what you would see in a Japanese film that they've not translated for Western audience because why would you bother?
0: Clearly the the controversy, and there is a bit of a controversy, is between homage or cultural appropriation. Mm. Uh, And, you know, it can go either way. But here's the thing. I actually get to say this. If you do feel raw about this, Mm. um, that's – you're perfectly entitled to. Yeah. You don't need me to explain away or Mm. even attempt to. So I can leave that there. Yeah, and
1: neither of us are Japanese. So we, you know, we've got our own thoughts on it. We Jan, Jan is Chinese,
0: <laughs> so I have no idea, um, you know. But to me, as a as a as a as a film goer, uh, you know, you get you pick up a bit about mm. a culture, possibly the wrong bits, um, from Miyazaki films, mm. uh, anime, and so on.
1: But well, I, I lived in Japan, and I think there's a lot in the film that seems really authentic. Oh, good to my mind. Yeah. Um,
0: Or at least authentic to a tourist's mind.
1: Well, in terms of little cultural notes that I'm like, definitely saw people doing that. That definitely seems...
0: How long were you in Japan
1: for? Like a year. That's a long time, really. I did the the usual early 20s voyage into the
0: east. (laughs) Well, that was no Occident, I'm sure. Anyway,
1: um, Anyway. Back to the film.
0: Back to the film. Um, we, we talked about this briefly last week about how it's a dystopic future, near future. Mm-hmm. There's a, a dog flu virus. It's gone through the dog population of the fictional Megasaki city. It's
1: a, bit, it's a, bit a little V for Vendetta, you know.
0: It's all, it's all narrated, this film. Totally. Yes. You get all of this... All this quite dense information about it, and basically, they are using this for political ends, and they banish all the dogs to the Isle of trash yeah and uh, you know um a, a young boy goes to try and find his dog mm. spots mm. <laughs> um, and, and here we we do run into all oh, of that's wonderful, actually, yeah I, I felt really the moved s- by that. The setup
1: is good, yeah, I felt very emotionally involved in this film,
0: <laughs> yeah, I did too. I thought, that, what a rotten thing to do, mm. really rotten to our best friends. Um, and and the, the thing about all of that is th- then we run into the uh, what we will call the white saviour character, mm. um, for want of a better term. I could tell you her name. <laughs> that might help instead, uh, which is actually she's a, meant to be a, an exchange student mm. uh, in Japan and she is basically uh, – Tracy, Uh, Tracy, yeah, uh, voiced by Greta Gerwig. Um, She's basically the person who sees all of this corruption and uh, the conspiracy Mm. and and starts to break it up. But I felt actually Wes Anderson undermined that character at a a lot of points. I
1: think quite purposefully as well.
0: Yeah. She goes charging in and she gets slapped down and things happen and and, and really it's other people who are the, the catalysts I don't know, is she just a a convenient um, uh, sort of a blank page for Westerners to get into the the film?
1: Maybe that was kind of the, maybe there was a bit of a point there in terms of here's what you're taught to expect, we're going to do something different here. Mm. Um, I mean I think the thing for me is that this has got just enough Wes Anderson flair on it. I love Wes. There was a point where he lost me for a time, but I think this film. Some of the things that maybe people don't like about his style, he doesn't overdo it here. Mm. And but I think it still has all the elements, like the good timing, the connection of the music and the image, the you know the framing, all of that stuff is <laughs> the
0: center so the, great, the, the central central to the uh, the vision. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and I mean, Dead the centre. heart of the film is the dog characters. Sure. Um, and I think they're done so well, and the animation of those dogs is so delightful.
0: Oh, now there's the thing. This is this is a movie that's stop animated, and it's done brilliantly. A great. The
1: amount of work.
0: The craft that's just gone into that It would
1: have been incredible. Perhaps
0: difficult. the word is the craft, <laughs> considering that it's um, about dogs, and it is, it's just ex- exquisite. You're watching mm. that, and you and then you really buy into it, and you believe it, and you think, yeah. Um, I think this is better stop animation, better, worse, you know, but uh, more developed stop animation than um, the Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Um, and th- it just, it's so believable. Uh, yes, because I know talking dogs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you feel like you might after you watch this film.
0: Yeah. This is Kim Stanley Robinson, author of Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. Actually felt like watching a samurai movie on oh, mm. dogs.
1: I thought the music was great.
0: Mm. Yeah, it really got me into the place. Uh, our overall summation for that is, what do you think?
1: Oh, I like I was saying, I think, I can't remember if it was on air on the break, but I can't wait to see it again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I really thought it was whimsical, but also poignant, and it was just fun. I just really, I mean, it's about dogs in Japan. It's like it was made from all the things I like. No. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I loved it. I really did. The more I think about it, the more I like
0: it. Yeah, I, I give it a height, yeah. Mm. Mode in Zero G's terms. Uh, all right, that's it for th- the today, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of mm. Avengers Infinity War. I know, exciting. Uh, oh, and uh, if you want to see a, a fun but silly giant monster film, go and see Rampage. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Rock, right? The rock. He's not the monster. <laughs> okay. All right, now with um, uh, Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Megan. <laughs>